Running Light Ministry Podcast is brought to you by listeners like you. You can support these podcasts by making a gift to the ministries at runninglight.org. Welcome to the Better Pleasure Podcast. This is Bo, and I'm with Peter Martin, and this is episode 80, and we're going to talk about Peter Martin's new book on sin. That's amazing that you're you're doing your own book. It's got to be pretty exciting. Yeah, it's pretty awesome, man. Yeah. Like I've never written a book before. So, <laughs> so hey, why not? <laughs> why not, dude? Why not go for it, right? So what's the book about? It's just about sin. So it starts off... Um, it starts off with just like, um, you know, I think you've read the first couple of lessons where yeah. it just starts off on kind of like what is sin and how, uh, how the biblical definition differs from, um, kind of what we in our culture kind of designate sin. Cause we kind of tend to look at sin as just, uh, a behavior. Well, yeah, yeah, like I, I talked about it a little bit of how like a lot of people in our day and age think of sin as kind of like a, uh, you know, I like the way that one, this one dude put it. He said, we look at sin as being an enjoyable type of naughtiness, mm-hmm. you know, where it's like, it's like, you know, you shouldn't do it, but if you did it, it's like, it's like a blast, you know, <laughs> like, but God <laughs> says no, you know, and I, I, he uses the example of Sin City. You know, or you got Las Vegas being Sin City. You know, yeah. no one no one says like, oh, like Las Vegas is Sin City as in like, oh, man, that place is like super depraved and we should right. never go there. Usually when people are saying it, it's like, man, that place is a lot of fun, but like it's it's wrong. So we, we, we shouldn't go there all the time. But, you know, yeah, it's, and fun it's hard, to and, and it's hard in our culture to think of something as being evil or bad. Yeah. In its essence. Yeah. You know, and it's like very nature. Yeah. You know. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and I also kind of talk about how, um, you know, and you and I talk about this all the time, the idea that we as Christians are starting to use terminology like secular psychological terms to describe sinful behavior. And it's kind of like had a lot of adverse effects. So I talk a lot about that of how, you know, when I label someone like a sex addict or a porn addict, it's like that's a pretty heavy term to put on someone, you know? Yeah. And it has a lot of like connotations, like a lot of negative connotations that I'm putting on that person. And uh the reason why we've done that is because we basically tried to take our morality and make it more palatable to the world. Mm. You know, and and the the main issue that I bring up is that when you do that, it's like the reason why we have the word sin, you know, and I know you've talked about this before that there's different words in the Bible for sin. There's iniquity, there's trespass and there's sin. Like one of the main ones that's used is trespass, which is the idea of breaking covenant with someone, you know, like actually breaking trust with someone, meaning that the the main connotation for sin in the Bible is not just that you're missing God's mark, which is one of the words for sin. It's not just that you're internally bent away from what God intended you, which is the word for iniquity, but it's that you're actually breaking trust with God, like God has given you a commandment and you're breaking trust. But when I use terms like sex addict, porn addict, glutton, things like that, I'm taking their issue and I'm separating it from their relationship with God, where the words for sin are supposed to put someone in conflict with God. They're supposed to be like, oh, like what I'm doing conflicts with God's nature. Um, as opposed to just seeing it as what I'm doing conflicts with my happiness, uh, which is the way that most Christians are trying to 
kind of sell Phrase things yeah to the world of like hey you know you don't want to do this because it conflicts with your happiness you know if you want to be a happy person yeah you don't want to be addicted to this i was stuff. actually listening to craig kunkel from standard reason the other day and i was telling you about the the interview he's having with this guy who is a psych, some kind of psychologist guy and um they were talking about the dsm three four five and how mm. it was all about that it was all about that idea of it's not so much the behavior that is now considered bad, but it's how you feel about <laughs> your behavior that can be problematic. That's right. You know? <laughs> as long as you feel good about it, you know, and other people feel good about it, <laughs> then it's okay. You then know? you're good. <laughs> but as long as someone has negative vibes, man, that's the yeah. issue. So what you're t doing in the book is you're kind of helping people see that sin is an important word to use because it is more God-centered. Right. Uh, so it helps people to be able to look at that um, vertical relationship between God and them yeah. and deal with that where, uh, you know, um, a lot of people who want to use maybe um, more psychological wording, wording that appeals more to your own selfish desire for happiness. Right. The way you see it. Right. The way you see your happiness. Right. I was thinking today while I was uh, up in the morning, I was thinking about this addiction, sex addiction thing. And I, I kept thinking <laughs> this weird, simple thought. Heroin addict can't do heroin. Alcohol. <laughs> And the alcoholic can't do alcohol, <laughs> you know, um, you know, so I was thinking sex addict can't, can't have sex, sex. <laughs> you know, what I, mean? I was thinking like, <laughs> so we use the word sex addict, but, but we're supposed to have sex. And I was like, this makes no sense. <laughs> no, dude, they're supposed to be celibate. You know, I'm sure, I'm sure there's somebody there that's like treating sex addicts. And he's like, you're, you're celibate for the rest of your life. You know, you right. can't, you can't do it. You know? Right. Which is nutty, you know, which is like totally crazy. Yeah. So I was trying to fit it to make it work. You know, I was trying to think like, well, can a heroin addict do like a little bit of heroin? <laughs> or maybe it's just the context of heroin. Like if he does heroin in the right spot, then in the right place, then he's okay to do it. And I went, that didn't, that don't uh -huh. work. <laughs> that, that's lame. <laughs> don't think that, Bo. And then I thought, you know, well, cocaine addict. Can a cocaine addict do coke sometimes? <laughs> and, you know, and again, I struck out. I kept, and I was like, but sex, you know, it, you know, sex just doesn't work like that. Yeah. When you say someone's a sex addict and then you say, well, no, but I, I, I'm assuming that you can have sex in the proper context, yeah. um, in the right morality yeah. with the right morality, then, then it's good. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that doesn't sound like, um, the same thing. That's um, right. It, it's, it's weird. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it certainly is. So it's, it's, you know, a lot of people don't want to call things sin though, because when, or let me ask you this. Do you think that there's been damage in the church, though, by people in the sexual context, you know, calling things sin when it comes to sexuality? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I do. So you're saying, like, do you think there's been damage uh, when we've refused to call it sin when it comes to sexuality? No, or? do you think there's damage when we have called it sin? Oh, um... 
it depends on if we're able to adequately dis- define what sin is, you know? So if, uh, if I tell someone like, let's say, let me use this example because I think it's the most commonly used one and I, and I do agree with the premise, but again, I think it does stem from a misunderstanding of what sin really is. Um, when pastors have called uh, homosexuality a sin, um, what some people hear in the congregation if they have homosexual tendencies is they hear the fact that they, in their identity, um, are necessarily a sinner because they have those urges. Um, meaning that they completely um, separate themselves from the entire message of the gospel and because the gospel says that we have now inherited the nature and identity of Christ by faith and they have completely separated themselves from that identity and said no because I have these urges I am by nature a sinner and therefore I am not a partaker of grace uh, because I still have these urges and that's why that's why I'm saying it, it it does stem from a misunderstanding of the word sin and how we define it within the Christian walk so for instance if I help someone understand, and I, I try to do this in some of the chapters of my book, if I help someone understand, number one, that everybody um, by nature is a sinner. When we're talking about sin, we're talking about an innate fallen nature that's alive in every person. We're not talking about a simple behavior. If I look at sin as a simple behavior, what it does is it separates people into categories, meaning so it puts someone who, let's say, let's use, keep using the example of someone who struggles with homosexuality, and now puts them inside this category of sin that other people in the church cannot relate to. They're like, you're in this category of sin, but I'm not, because I don't do these outward manifestations of sinful behavior. Um, whereas what the Bible's talking about is, no, like sin dwells in your heart, and it can grow out into any number of wicked and depraved actions. Right. So my sinful nature, maybe you aren't someone who struggles with homosexuality, but maybe and maybe you don't struggle sexually at all. Maybe you struggle with greed or maybe you struggle with finding your value through vanity. Through Even though it's hard to believe someone doesn't struggle with sexuality at it's all. <laughs> it's very hard to believe, <laughs> but let's give them the benefit of the doubt <laughs> That's right. and were. say that they are just, you know, when it comes they to got sex, it licked. they got it licked and it's all good. You know, I mean, there's there's always going to be some area of depravity within their heart. So that means that when we understand that fundamentally as a church, now the person who struggles with homosexuality is not in an an, uh, abstract different category, but they're now we're all leveled. We're at the same level of understanding. No, we're all sinners before God. We all have the sinful nature. But that also means that the hope that's in Christ is the same for everybody, that once we're delivered from the sinful nature by faith in Christ, we now have a new nature in him. And I also try to explain the fact that when you're saved, even though you have a new nature, the old nature doesn't go away. Meaning that it's not like when you get saved, all of a sudden you no longer crave the things of this earth. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you don't understand that, by the way, if you have any amount of sinful inclination towards what we as the church would call like the big sin issues, like sexual sin, drugs, alcohol, anger issues stuff like that you would say like that person's not saved they don't have the new nature because they're still struggling in these big areas but if you understand sin fundamentally from the get-go then you'll understand no we're all sinners 
And it doesn't matter what sin you struggle in, that doesn't take away from what Christ did for you. Um, the sin nature still remains. Um, and one of the major evidences I give for this is actually in Hebrews, where it talks about Jesus. Um, first in Hebrews 4, where it says he was tempted in all ways as we were, yet without sin. To be tempted means that Jesus had something in him that wanted to go away from the will of God. Now, what we believe as Christians is we believe that Jesus took on the sinful nature of the flesh, but he didn't succumb to it, meaning that he had temptations to go that way because he willingly subjected himself to those temptations, but he never actually indulged the gratifications of the flesh. And then later on in Hebrews 10, it uses Jesus as an example. I'm sorry, um, Hebrews 12, it uses Jesus as an example of someone who resisted sin to the point of bloodshed. And what the writer of Hebrews is talking about, um, what a lot of people believe he's talking about, is when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying to the Father about not going to the cross and he has such anguish over it that he begins to sweat blood. Meaning that Jesus had such a conflict in his heart of wanting to go against the will of the Father that he literally started to sweat blood in his anguish. Um, you know, I've I've struggled and battled against sin quite a bit in my life. I've had some nights where I've like laid in bed and like wrestled with it and stuff like that. I've never sweat blood though. You know, like I've never yeah. gotten to that status. And what that tells me is that if we're going to look at Jesus and be consistent doctrinally as Christians and say Jesus was without sin, then you have to acknowledge the fact that his being without sin did not mean that he was being without temptation or struggle against sin. Um, and so that means for a Christian, um, when someone is damaged by me saying like, oh, this is a sin, they're not damaged by the word, they're damaged by the understanding of the word. That there's something missing from their definition where they can't understand that, hey, if you struggle with homosexuality, that's not your identity anymore. But it's just a struggle that you have before God that you've got to deal with. But I have my struggles before God too. And everybody else does. They're just different. You know? Yeah. The reason why I think it's important to talk about the kind of origin of the word sin and how it's used, and that's what you're talking about, what it really means, because that's really what we—that's our belief, and and we have two ways we can go about helping people, and that is, um, you know, and in a dialogue I had recently with um, David Lay, we kind of have been kicking this this idea around of belief v versus behavior. Mm -hmm. You know, and, you know, what do you need to change when it comes to someone coming to you and saying, hey, I have a behavior that I don't like mm. um, or I want to see changed? Um, do you help the person just with the behavior or do you help the person with the belief system that's bothering them mm. about their behavior? Yeah. And and that might be confusing to people, but um you know, sometimes it's sometimes it's easy to say to someone, hey, well, why do you think it's wrong? And they go, well, you know, because it's a sin. And you might say, well, you know, um, you know, what do you think sin is? And just by that question alone, they might all of a sudden give you a definition of sin that's totally different than maybe even what the Bible's saying about sin. Right. 
And so their belief, that's showing that their belief, that's what what's the conflict in their heart could be a misunderstanding of what something's, what, what it means. Right. You right. know, and, and I sometimes wonder if a lot of people that don't come even to us and to our groups sometimes don't have just a, what I find is they just, there's a lot of misunderstanding. Yeah. I mean, is that what you find too? Yeah, no, I, I do, you know, that there, there is a, a fundamental under misunderstanding um, of not only like uh, what they're struggling with, but what constitutes failing to sin. Meaning that, you know, if I'm, if I'm talking to a particular person who, let's say, you know, they don't view pornography, they don't have illicit sexual relationships, they don't do any of these things, they don't um, fantasize about other women, they don't masturbate, they can have an idea that they don't struggle sexually at all. Uh, but that may not be true. So, for instance, you know, and I, I take some time to explain this also in, in the book as well. For instance, maybe they aren't really, they don't really struggle with that side of sexual temptation, but maybe they struggle instead with being maybe a little bit on the codependent side. I mean, they don't really find a lot of pleasure and satisfaction through just sexuality, through having an orgasm and through something like that. But they find intense amounts of value and identity in their life through being needed by other people. Um, and I've seen this happen in both men and women, but there are some men that I've counseled that they don't even have a sexual drive towards their spouse anymore. Um, but they find a lot of satisfaction and fulfillment from being there for their spouse or just being married to them. Um, and they find a lot of just, just uh, joy in that and pleasure in that. And they don't understand that um, number one, the main point of the issue of sin is that God is our central focus. God ought to be our central focus because he's God. And God needs to be our central focus because we're designed to be with him. So that means that whenever any amount of sin comes into your life, you're actually separating yourself from your true joy and satisfaction because it needs to be found in God. So even though this person isn't viewing porn, having illicit relationships, whatever, because they're, they're finding so much of their value system in simply being married or enabling another person's bad decisions, they're actually not going to God for their satisfaction. They're going to something else. They're going to their sexuality just in a different way than a porn user would do it. Um, and because of that, they're also separated from God by their sins, by, their, by their, uh, the, that nature that doesn't want to go to God for its satisfaction. Um, that would be the first point that I would make. And then the second point that I would make in that same kind of realm is that um, someone like this might also not understand that there is a sexual, uh, there is a proper sexual context that their marriage is supposed to have, and they might be failing to it even though they're not committing illicit sex. So I'm using the example of a man, but it also could be true for a woman. Uh, but if uh, you're in a relationship like that where you do not find pleasure um, primarily in having sex, um, you can actually deny your spouse sexuality um, because you just you just don't find that satisfying or appealing. Yeah, it's like if you don't work on your sensuality. That's right. That's right. So the issue is is that it says that love doesn't seek its own. So like my my for instance is say you just eat like chocolate all day, right? Because yeah. you're you you just like to do that. You drink beer, eat peanuts, have yeah. some chocolate. You let yourself get all out of whack, so you have no sensual um 
desire no you have no sensual uh, like a, a view of your sexuality right. you know a feeling of of sexuality right you've given that all up right you know and that gluttony has become right <laughs> like your dealio yeah <laughs> or you just you yeah. know and you could still be thin maybe maybe yeah. you didn't get big but you just you kind of don't even you, you don't you don't find any worth right in being uh sexually pleasing Right. To your spouse. Right. And so a lot of people like that wouldn't see themselves as being um, disordered in their sexuality or wrong in it. And they would actually look at their spouse who's maybe wanting to have healthy intimacy with them. And they would be like, oh, they're they're perverted. They just want me for sex. They just, you know, and they might they might resent them for it. But in a way, you know, when you look at First Corinthians seven, it says don't withhold don't withhold the sexuality that is due to your spouse. So it means that there's, there is a, uh, something that needs to be done with my sexuality towards my spouse that honors them. Yeah. And, uh, by me saying like, well, no, I don't have an issue because I don't struggle with these things. doesn't necessarily mean that you don't struggle in sexuality. It just means that you struggle in a different way and that needs to be understood. So what we are always trying to get at with the people in our groups is that there's there's a huge sexual paradigm uh, of of issues that you could struggle a spectrum of issues that you can have in your sexuality, and the unfortunate thing is is that many many people um, when they're thinking about our group they feel like it only appeals to the person who views pornography mm-hmm. uh, or has adultery, and what me and Bo are always trying to show is that no like everybody has sexual issues but we just need to find our solutions in Christ. And that means that, and that's what our group is aimed at. Um, it's finding our satisfaction, enjoying Christ supremely so that we won't have these issues in our sexuality or other areas of our lives. Mm. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So, it, I mean, that's, that's important. A lot of people certainly need to hear that, that angle of it because it's easy for them to go, Oh, I, I don't sin. Uh, when maybe, you know, they're, they are right. Right. And, and I even uh, think about Jesus's ministry. One of the primary things that Jesus had to do in his ministry was to disprove a philosophical and theological belief system that was, that was propagated by the Pharisees that sin is only action based and it's not behavior based or it's not mentally committed meaning that they had been telling people that the way to fulfill the Ten Commandments is just keep them outwardly. So the, the, it says, thou shall not murder. They said, okay, well, just don't kill people. You know? And so people are like, okay, we're not going to kill the Romans, but is it okay we, if we hate them? And they're like, yeah, hate them. You know, <laughs> hate them in your heart and, and wish for them to be dead, you know? but don't, don't do that. And they're like, okay, well, it's wrong for me to commit adultery on my wife, but what if I just you know, fantasize a little bit or you know, whatever? And they're like, yeah, do that. It's okay. It's totally cool. Just keep it outwardly and then inwardly you'll be okay and what jesus is constantly trying to get at with the pharisees is like no 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 no. you guys are trying to be righteous before god through your actions and that's why you've redefined the laws to such an extent where you can keep them and feel proud he says but that's that's your issue it's your pride that's separating you from god the purpose of the law was meant to show you the distance that you have between god and your need for a mediator i guess the whole point and so Jesus spends a lot of time trying to show people sin begins in your heart and it doesn't matter if you're committing it outwardly or not. It may matter for consequences, meaning there's a vast difference of consequences between if I go out and actually kill someone versus if I fantasize about killing them in my mind. 
But before God, there is no difference. It remains sin in his eyes. So what Jesus is trying to get at with all of us is that we all have a need to go after God in these sin areas of our life. And unfortunately, a lot of Christians have adopted the pharisaical kind of mindset when it comes to sin. That as long as I'm not acting on a sin, I'm not sinning. And beyond that, they may even go one step further. And when someone does say that they're struggling with sin, because they don't understand that sin originates in the heart, they'll just merely try to change that person's actions in order to save them. So in other words, someone comes to them and says, hey, I struggle with viewing porn. Their response will be, well, just stop. Stop viewing porn. Right? But if you do that, Jesus put it this way. He says, if you clean the outside of a cup, but you leave the inside dirty, you've done nothing, right? Yeah. It's still dirty. Clean the inside, and then it will be clean. So it seems like you, you know, when it comes to the behavior or the belief, there always has to be in recovery a move towards first dealing with belief and working on that area of belief yeah. over and over and over and over, right? That's right. You know, especially if the belief is wrong. Um, you know, that's, that's the, well, I that's think, the biggest and thing. I think there's a lot of confusion yeah, and rightfully so. Yeah. Um, you know, for, for, for so many people, they're, they're, they're kind of at their wits end, mm. you know, they've been told, you know, Hey, you know, if you just do this more, if you just, you know, you just go to church more, if you just listen to more sermons, if you just pray more, if you just do this, you're not going to sin. Right. Let alone pornography i mean <laughs> i mean it can be any sin but you know th- it's always that way it's just pray you know read your bible and and then you're going to be fine it'd be good you yeah. know and thing is is the more you pray the more you read your bible the more you, you you know you can tend to think like man something's wrong with me right you know because i still have the sinful inclination and shouldn't the sinful inclination, shouldn't it be God? Why do I keep acting off of the sinful inclination? Right. You know, right? Romans says, you know, if you walk in the spirit, you cannot please God. You know, he, you know, why aren't you walking in the spirit? You go, man, I'm not walking in the spirit. You know, and, uh, you know, I always have to, s- whenever I read passages like Ro- Romans chapter 8, you know, to be carni- carnal minded is death, but to be spiritual minded is life. And, mm. you know, I take it day by day. You know, where I always go, hey, you know what? Today's a good day, man. I'm walking in the spirit today, you know, because we tend to we tend to like look at our lives as like these snapshots. Right. And w- and, and you might masturbate 20 times a year. Yeah. But you tend to think of your whole year as being one giant masturbation. <laughs> <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. Like in the church. Yeah. And and so you don't you don't look at. Kind of like you don't see the positive. You don't see like, hey, there was a lot of days where I walked in the power of the Spirit of God. Yeah. And then there was other days I didn't do I didn't do that. I relied on you know the arm of the flesh. Right. And which, which is a a huge problem because once again, like if I understand um, that sin originates in the heart, and then it flows out into different issues, then what I'm going to start understanding is that it's a process. It's a process to become more Christ-like, um, meaning that well, we want to be Christ-like now. <laughs> <laughs> in Galatians five, it says the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self. You know that that's the fruit of the spirit. The reason why Paul is using that analogy of a botanical type growth is he's saying that it is a process. 
Um, developing any amount of fruit takes time. Uh, later on in that same passage, he says um, in Galatians 6 verse 9, he says, don't grow weary while doing good for in the right time you will reap a harvest if you don't lose heart. Paul's major uh, encouragement towards us is, look, it's not about receiving the result that you want. It's about day by day walking by faith in Christ, and he will begin to renew you and begin to produce in you more and more righteousness uh, through your faithfulness and through his grace, right? But that's, that's the main issue is that it is a process. It's not something that can happen overnight. If I just look at sin as being action-based, then it should be something that should happen overnight. Uh, meaning that it is something that's either I'm doing it or I'm not. Um, and it is that simple. But if you understand that it is an underlying heart issue, then, man, someone could be not viewing porn for an entire year and their heart could be just as wicked as before. Yeah. On the contrary, someone could be viewing porn once or twice a week and their heart could be, could be being changed yeah. radically by the power of the Spirit. Yeah, and they, and they could have an amazing walk with God on so many levels. That's right. I mean, I, fi- I look at my own life and I go, man, there's so many wonderful things that, you know, happen in my life and just so thankful and, and so grateful, man. I, I have a wonder, a great prayer life enjoy my time with God. And then I think about this one area, <laughs> <laughs> you know, That's right. and you know, and it's easy to take that, to, to think of the one area and just have it forfeit everything else. That's right. And, and this is where I think a lot of, uh, you know, when it comes to this issue of, of getting the belief right, it becomes difficult in, in today's Christianity because we listen to so many messages, we read so many things, we watch so many videos, and, and I don't think we're able to really grasp what the belief is. Right. Because so many people that we listen to are coming at it from a different belief. Right. You know, where if you, if I listened, if I asked one of the pastors, hey, what's your belief of sin? And then I asked the, another pastor the same thing. They're going to give me two different answers. Right. Similar in some ways, but different in other ways. Different in how it applies maybe practically in uh, and what the things you're talking about um, uh, so much with uh, the actions, the behavior. Right. And how they view it. Some of them are going to look at it and go, "Hey, you need to stop sinning," yeah. and you know they're going to say, "Now," you know, kind of yeah. thing. <laughs> and and so there's there's these different views, and I think what it does is it 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 breeds amazing amounts of confusion in all of our lives. I know for yeah. me especially, I, I, there's so much where I just if whenever I detox, whenever I just <laughs> unwind from all of it, and I just have me in my Bible, yeah, you know, I find so much peace there yeah um but if i listen to too many things it it, i get confused right and i I think that the reason and this is just my two cents i think the main reasons why the church has gone this way um is because of the um the lack of discipleship meaning that um there's a there's a massive lack um in christianity of people meeting in small groups or just one-on-one with one another and just walking through the faith um, really what people have turned Christianity into is almost like a, a spectator sport where you just go and you, you participate by being there, but you don't participate by actually learning what's going on. And it's, it's come up with so many different things, but the major issue is, as you just said, Bo, there's disagreement fundamentally about the 
most foundational areas of Christianity that we need to have agreement on. And sin is probably one of the main ones. Sin is definitely one of the main ones. And because there's a foundational difference between what we believe, no one really talks about it. We just use the same words and think we mean the same things. Right. And the example I uh, automatically think of is the difference between us and Mormons. A lot of Christians, when they go and they talk to Mormons, they come away from the conversation believing that we believe basically the same stuff. You know, because you go to a Mormon and you say, hey, man, like, we believe in the Trinity. They'll be like, me too, you know. I believe that Jesus died for my sins and by faith in him I could be saved. They're like, "We, me too, you know. And I believe that, you know, that it's by faith alone that we enter into the kingdom of God. They're like, me too. And you, you walk away and you're like, wow, I thought Mormons were a cult, you know, but that dude seems like a Christian. Like, he's, he's, <laughs> he's like me. What you don't know is that the Mormons have redefined all of those words. So you're using these big highfalutin words that are really loaded and they've redefined them. They've redefined what Trinity means. They've redefined what saved means. They've redefined what grace means. They've redefined what faith means. They've, re- they've redefined all those words. And so even though you're saying the same words, you mean two very different things. Yeah. And the reason why Mormons have been able to slip into that language gap is because that language gap exists in Christianity. They've moved into it. And that's why they're growing so rapidly. Uh, specifically bringing in converts from the church because we don't understand fundamentally what we believe anymore. Um, So, you know, and I've shared this a lot as being part of my testimony. Growing up in the church, when I came back to faith in Christ around the age of 16, and then I started getting serious about my faith in Christ at the age of 22, I recognized that I didn't know what any of these fundamental words meant. Um, I didn't know what repentance was. I didn't know what sin meant. I didn't know what grace meant. I didn't know what mercy meant. I didn't know what faith meant. I didn't know what prayer was. I didn't know what fasting was. I didn't know what salvation meant. I didn't I didn't know any of these words. I used them all the time, and I thought I knew what they meant. But if you were to actually sit down and be like, give me a definition of repentance, I would be totally dumbfounded. I, would, I wouldn't know what to say. Um, I might even, I might be able to give you like a simplistic answer, But I wouldn't know how to give you a deep answer because no one ever walked through these things with me. Mm -hmm. Um, When you when we just listen to sermons, the issue is that the the pastor a lot of times and, you know, to, to defend some of these pastors, they don't know where people are at. And sometimes they assume that people are at a level that they're really not. Right. So they'll they'll talk at a level that people just aren't ready to hear. Yeah. What we always get from the Salvation Army guys is they're always glad we have the, the wherewithal to kind of break these things down. Right. And our talks at the Salvation Army, I don't want anybody to think that they're simplistic because they aren't. They 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 go underground. They get so deep and so heavy in theology. Mm-hmm. Um, but w- it's because we keep breaking it down. Like, what does that word mean? What are examples of that word mm-hmm. used in the Bible? Um, what are examples of how that plays out in our life Mm. Um, when we keep going down, down, down and how it relates to God Um, and is God really good? How does, how does this thing we're talking about uphold the goodness of God? Right. Um, So all these huge topics, you know, um, and, and if I could defend pastors too, is, you know, you only got a half an hour. You only got 40 minutes. Yeah. And that's why I tend to think like, you know, I, I'm really, oh, I, the more older I get, the more blown away I get at as guys like Pastor Chuck Smith from Calvary Chapel. Um, because I think sometimes just that simplistic way of teaching the Bible 
does more good to whet the appetite right. of the listeners where they go, oh, that's cool. Uh, I, I kind of get the chapter now or I'm kind of learning a little more. But if you go too, too down, you don't have enough time. That's what I find myself. It's like during the 45-minute talk, it's like you're just getting really into it <laughs> and then you got to kind of like tail back. Right. And, and so you're not able to hit these doctrines on every kind of angle. Right. And, 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 and give it the, maybe the do uh, that, you know, you so want to give it right. as a minister. Where people have kind of missed, uh, again, and I think this is kind of like a newer thing because the, the, uh, the older Christians definitely understood this. You could read a lot of their writings and understand that this was commonplace. The idea of discipleship was commonplace, meaning that they missed something um, that could be found only in dialogue. Meaning that, you know, if I just give a monologue to somebody and I don't hear anything back, I don't know how what I'm saying is impacting that person, right? So I could be saying something and in my mind it's going one way, but in another person's mind it's like totally going the other way and they're like lost and I don't even know. But it's like if we're able to dialogue, I'm able to say something and they could be like, whoa, like what does that mean? You know, or they could say like, oh, I see what you're saying. And then they could say what they think I'm saying. And it's totally different than what I'm actually saying. You know, the, the importance of dialogue, which can't happen when you're teaching a sermon, um, the importance of dialogue it can never be underestimated. You know, when you, when you look at Paul and the way that he taught, it always says that he reasoned with people. In the Greek, the word is literally dialogamos. You know, we get our word dialogue from it. It means that he spoke then he listened to what the person was saying back to him, and then he responded. And uh, even when you look at how Jesus taught, that's exactly how he taught, right? He said something, and then he allowed people to respond, and then he spoke again, right? And he's moving forward and helping them gain understanding. Um, when you don't have that, again, y there will be some people in the audience who will be tracking with you, but then there are some people who aren't which is why sermons are not, they never were intended to be the end-all be-all of the Christian diet. You know, they're supposed to be, they're an important part of our walk with God, but they're just one part, you know, and, and kind of a small part when you really think about the grand scheme of things. Yeah. And that's why, you know, that, that's what uh, Bo is saying, that's so good that, you know, pastors like Chuck Smith understood, this isn't the main course, you know, like he wasn't up there speaking of like, everyone's theology is depending on what I say in the next 30 minutes. You know, their entire walks with God are hinged on what I say in the next 30 minutes. He's like, you know, I'm about to say something. It's going to be simplistic. And you know what? After the sermon's over, if people didn't understand what he said, he expected them to go and talk to people about it, you know, and to have that, that time with other believers and to refine one another and to sharpen one another, you know? Yeah. So let's, let's kind of end the podcast with maybe uh, a question. Um, couple questions maybe to you um, since you just got done going through this book that you wrote um, and it's going to be on our website it will be on our website okay, uh, cool. in PDF format just like the other books and it is in workbook format but it is I was just telling Bo it's a little lengthier than our other books I, I, I try to keep it um, shorter but uh, I, I can tend to be long winded so <laughs> it, it, it ran a little long but it, it's good and thorough yeah, it's good and thorough it's it's 16 lessons long um, I put it as like a like I, I put it as kind of like a daily thing but you know each lesson is probably uh, close to like 10 pages so 
you know, you may want to do it like a, like a weekly thing, like a lesson per week, yeah. and then you could finish it. Let me start the question with this: Is do you really believe God has removed our sins from the believer, and what does that what does that really mean? Right, He's as far as the east is from the west, so He has removed our transgressions from us. Right. Um, so there's a couple ways that you could look at that statement, um, and the context of the Bible has to determine the the reality of that truth so the there are a couple possibilities the first way that i could look at that statement is i could say that god has removed my transgressions from uh, from me completely meaning i don't struggle anymore i have a completely new nature and i no longer struggle or fall to sin if i am in christ um, that's one interpretation of it the second interpretation is that god has removed the consequences of my transgressions from me that when I broke faith, when I break faith with God, there is a consequence to that action, meaning that if God wants a relationship with me, and I break my relationship with Him through my actions, the obvious consequence is separation, uh, separation and wrath from God. So, uh, which one is it? Well, you got to look through the Bible and see: Is there anyone in the Bible that was saved that did not struggle with sin? And the answer is no. I, I can't see a single person. Uh, you know, you go down the list of all the great heroes of the faith. You got David, who is an uh, angry guy, murderer, adulterer, struggled sexually pretty heavily. Even in the New Testament, you got guys like the Apostle Paul uh, claims to struggle with covetousness in, the, in Romans chapter 7 uh, to such an extent that he says, I don't even know what I'm doing anymore. He says that nothing good in me that is my flesh dwells. In 1 Timothy 1, he says that he's the chief among sinners. Um, and and that's at the end of his life. And that's at the end of his life. You got the Apostle Peter, uh, who throughout his time with Jesus, he had a constant track record of failure. Um, and then even after Jesus ascended, uh, Peter ends up almost spreading a heresy through the Galatian church that Paul has to rebuke him to his face. That was based, by the way, it was based on racism. And <laughs> Paul has to rebuke him to his face and tell him, like, Peter, you really missed the ball here. So, if, if the interpretation that sin will be removed from us means that we will no longer struggle with it in the here and now, I have to disagree with that. Now, uh, the second interpretation also has a hope that one day there will be a day where God, what it, God has done positionally will be done practically, meaning that positionally the consequences of my sin right now are taken from me and I have a unity with God now. But then when I see him face to face, the promise is, is that what he's done positionally will be done practically, meaning that all my sin will be taken away from me and I will no longer uh, struggle at all in heaven. Um, that's That would be my answer to that question. D uh, another question. Do you think sin, using the term sin, um, is a shame-based term in recovery? I think it can be. I think that a lot of people use it that way. Meaning that um, uh, and this 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 actually, when it's used that way, it actually does come from sin itself inside of our heart. Meaning that when we understand the nature of sin, and by the way, the nature of sin, I, I explain this in the book, but the nature of sin is just trying to find um, our satisfaction in something other than God. Um, that's what sin is. If you want a, just a really simple definition, it's, it's something inside the human heart that naturally gravitates towards finding its satisfaction and pleasure apart from God instead of with God. Um, but because our sin nature dwells in us, 
uh, even as a religious person, as a Christian, you can try to find your value system uh, apart from God, meaning that instead of looking at God and understanding that the only way to receive a value system from God is by faith, I try to earn it through works. So now my religion has become my righteousness. My religion has become my good standing identity before God. When that happens, whenever you do something that you're proud of, it is impossible not to judge people who don't do the same thing. Meaning that when you're driving in traffic and you keep the speed limit, and let's say let's say you're waiting in a merging lane, you're waiting in a lane and there's like this huge backup in traffic and you see the dude drive up on the shoulder and cut everybody off. You know, why does it infuriate you when that person does that? You know, I mean, they didn't they didn't do anything personally to you. It's not a personal attack and it really didn't make you wait any longer. They just got away with something. The reason why you're mad at them is because you have a certain amount of pride from following the law and because they did something against the law, you now have anger against them. Now, this applies across the board for all things in our spiritual life. So if I pride myself on being sexually pure, it's impossible for me not to judge people who are sexually impure. So when I see someone going through the recovery process, let's say someone is um, struggling with sexual sin and they're seeking God, if I am someone who doesn't struggle at all with sexual sin or I'm someone who has struggled a lot and I found a great deal of victory in this area, it becomes really easy for me to be like, man, like you're sinning. Like you just keep sinning, like using it like that as an insult. Which, which is so sad because yeah. like, like we talked about earlier on, someone who maybe finds great victory in it, they might still be having a lot of issues being intimate with their spouse right. in, in different ways. Yeah. But yet because they haven't maybe masturbated or something for a <laughs> while, now they're now they look at people and they go, Man, if you just if you just you know, if you could just fear the Lord like me. <laughs> you wouldn't sin anymore, you know, and they could they could use it in those connotations and really jack people up because what people are hearing when they hear that, and this is by the way what I heard throughout my time in the church, is the the insinuation is that there are certain people who sin and there are certain people who don't. And I was in the category of sinners and there were other Christians who didn't sin. And so when people would beat, beat me up with that through sermons, I would feel like, gosh, this dude certainly doesn't have sin, uh, but I do. And he's pointing it out. When in reality, if you had really received your identity in Christ, you would realize that I received it not through anything that I did, but through what God did for me. And it, it really plays out powerfully in a parable that Jesus tells about this. Where in the parable, he hires, it's a master who hires people to work in his field. And it's a really cool parable, if you guys have never read it. Um, but, you know, he hires people to work in his field. And the first people he hires at like 6 a.m. And the second people he hires at like 9. And then the third people he hires at noon. And then the fourth group of people he hires at like all the way up until 5 o'clock in the afternoon. He hires people to work in his field. And the people that worked from 5 in the afternoon to 6 in the afternoon, only one hour, they receive a full day's wage for what they did. And the people who worked at 6 in the morning, so they worked a full 12 hours, they're like, man, if they got paid full day's wage for one hour, surely I'm going to get like 12 days wages. And they're all, they're all psyched. And they get up to the front, and he still just gives them one day's wage. And they're like, this is wrong. Man, we worked harder than these people. We did more than them. And Jesus says, why are you upset with me? Because I'm good. It's my money. Right? If I did, I not tell you that your reward would be one day's wage if, if I wronged you in some way. And he and he goes off on them. And and the whole point of that 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 passage 
is what Jesus is saying is, look, what you have is grace. God has given you a grace. If you've seen victory in your area of sin, it's because of God's grace. It's not anything you did. And the very fact that you're saved in the first place is grace. Uh, Jesus' disciples at one point, they're bragging about how demons are trembling at them and they're preaching the gospel in all different places. And Jesus says, don't be thankful about that. Be thankful that you're listed in the, in, in the book of life. What he's saying is like, dude, like this is, it's cool, but it's not that cool. Yeah. <laughs> What's cool but is that's that you're not, going that's to not, that's not proof of your salvation. That's right. It's not proof of your salvation. It doesn't mean anything. And, and he later on, he says that there will be people who have cast out demons who will say to me in the last day, Lord, Lord, and I'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. So it has nothing to do with your salvation and nothing to do with your life. All it is is that now that I am saved, the more victory I have in God, the happier, the more joyous I am in him, meaning my intimacy with him is increased and I am pleasing him more and therefore my joy in him is increasing with it. Um, it's impossible to feel proud when you're working for joy. Meaning this, if I take my wife on a date tonight and I genuinely enjoy her, I won't be judging husbands that don't take their wives on dates because in, in my mind, I'll be like, well, you're just missing out, right? I'm not better than you for doing this, but I'm certainly happier than you for doing this. I have, I have a better relationship with my wife as a result of doing this, but it's not, I'm not better than you. In the same way as a Christian, it's like I'm not better than someone for doing something because it's faith that makes us all equal in God's eyes. But certainly my walk with God might be more enjoyable than yours because I have greater victory in this area or because God's working or because I'm receiving some sort of a grace. Um, but again, that's true across the board. I could say the same thing to the person who's proud, same thing to the person who's greedy, right? It's their sin that's separating them from intimacy with God and intimacy with God is the, the purpose of all life. So do yeah. you think the church in their, um, in their, the way they handle sinful issues do you think the church just in general in the United States, the way they handle sinful issues, um, do you think uh, that they understand salvation by grace through faith? I don't believe so. And this is why I say that with caution, because I know that they teach it. They teach it. But the issue is, is you know, and me and you talk about this often, it's like, let's take a, a traditional Calvinistic view. Um, if someone is struggling with habitual sin in a Calvinistic worldview, theological view of the fact that if you're elect, then you're elect and you will have saving faith and you will change. If someone is struggling with habitual sin and following repeti repetitively from a Calvinistic perspective, you may not be elect and you may not have ever tasted of the grace of God. Um, from an Arminian perspective, if you are struggling with habitual sin, meaning Arminians believe that you can fall out of salvation. If you're struggling with habitual sin, you might have fallen out of salvation. Now, here's, here's the problem. If I'm judging someone's salvation, whether or not I think they're saved based on their works, that insinuates that works is a factor in salvation. Right now, a lot of people don't put those two together, but it is insinuated. If your works can kick you out of the kingdom, it's insinuated that your works got you into the kingdom. Now, only if if I really believed that it is grace through faith, period. That means that your works have no bearing on whether or not someone is saved. Um, now, 
you could you could point out certain passages in the Bible that that talk about you know make your call and election sure and all these things. And I totally and one hundred percent agree with you that if you are saved, you ought to be walking after God. Um, it is no f- coming from personal experience. It is no fun whatsoever to be saved and to walk after your flesh. It sucks. It's terrible. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. <laughs> um, but it doesn't mean like in my time when I was a uh, when I was sixteen years old and I was struggling with porn. I don't look back at that and like, oh, I wasn't saved. Like I was saved, and that's why my life sucked so much. You know, when I wasn't saved, I actually had kind of a good time in my sin. You know, it wasn't that bad. You know, like I mean, obviously I didn't have God, but I didn't know I didn't have God. You know, I didn't I didn't understand what a relationship with God was all about. I was kind of happy in my sin, but when I got saved and I had tasted of the goodness of God and I walked away in sin that's when my life really became miserable and filled with depression. Mm. Um, and, and a lot of people don't understand that. So it's like, if you feel bummed and you're sinning and you're falling, that's evidence that you are saved. That's evidence that you have tasted of God and you do want greater intimacy with him, but you just don't understand it. Paul put it this way. He said to the Philippian church, we are fellow workers for your joy. And if, if ministers in the church understood that, it would be such an awesome place, man. Notice what he says. We're fellow workers, meaning we're alongside you. Paul doesn't say, man, I'm, I'm like over you, you know. Um, he says, I'm fellow. I'm with you, first off. Secondly, we're workers, meaning I as well am working towards God, right? Paul's not like I've arrived and I could teach you how to make it. He says, I'm working right alongside you. Mm-hmm. Man, so you come and you tell me, hey, I'm struggling with this. Paul would be like, dude, I'm struggling with this, you know, and this is how I'm working on it, you know, and he's, mm-hmm. he's working together with them, but he's working together with them for what? For your joy. Meaning that Paul's not beating people up with their sin and saying like, you suck, you're terrible. He's like, no, there's joy in Christ that we should be pursuing guys. Like God loves us. He cares for us. Paul is always pointing people towards the prize. That's why you don't really see hell talked about too often in the letters and the epistles. Very rarely will you see hell even mentioned in the epistles. And the reason why it's not is because heaven is about pursuing God, not about running away from hell. A relationship with God is about pursuing him and intimacy with him, not about not having consequences. That's a, that's a very foolish way of looking at things. So, yeah, when I hear ministers talk like that and use negative consequences as their fuel to fire people off towards God... I, I really struggle with that and have issue with that because it is, first of all, not God-centered, meaning that you're centering people on negative consequences and not on God. Mm-hmm. Secondly, it does insinuate that sin can take you from God, that by sinning you can lose your salvation. And then you get into all sorts of weird uh, de- debates with people of like, well, how much sin makes you lose your salvation? Right, and then you, <laughs> and then you have to... Then you have to go self-righteous route because <laughs> right. if you don't go self-righteous route, then you then you have to admit sin. That's right. So it's like it, it puts every you know, and that's the important thing about belief. Yeah, is you know when people go to a recovery group and they're just focusing on behavior. Yeah. Um, and not on belief, man, they're missing out. They are because it, it's so much of what we believe. Yeah. You know that that dictates the despair. Um, you know, if I didn't believe that I was saved by grace through faith, I would have been toast years yeah. ago, you know, but, you know, if I stumble into something, you know, I don't beat myself up. 
And if someone says, well, Bo, you know, you've been struggling with that for a long time, you know, you must not really get it, you know. I just say, well, I maybe not, you know, and I'll walk away and I'll open up my Bible yeah. and I'll read, you know, I'll read the book of Romans and I'll read the book of Ephesians and I'll read the book of Colossians and I'll go, you know what? I'm saved by grace, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and right. no matter what that person said to me, um, you know, I, I have a firm belief that if you're in the covenant, you're in the covenant. Yeah. And, um, and God's election is sure. His calling and election is sure. That's right. And and that's that's why, you know, I don't usually get into debates like that with people where it's like, well, what does it say? You know, First John 5, we write you this that you may know that you have eternal life. And eternal yeah. life is for those who believe on the Son of God. So it's like if you don't know that you have eternal life, that's because your knowledge of eternal life is not coming from faith. It's coming from works. Faith can always be, you know, tested. It's very simple. Do you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins? And do you accept that as your source of salvation? If you say yes to those questions, you're good, you know? Mm-hmm. But if you say no to them, then you're not good. <laughs> you know, it's really that simple. But it's not like I said yes to that and I didn't sin today. Therefore, yeah. I'm saved. Um, Paul says that if you add one thing to salvation, you have denied the faith, And uh, right? And this is... Uh, this is in Galatians. Yeah. He's talking about them adding one thing to salvation. He says, let such people be accursed yeah. for this. If you get circumcised, which was the one thing that they were preaching, he says, if you get circumcised, Christ has become Nothing. no avail to yeah. you, and you have fallen from grace. Um, so that's pretty heavy stuff, you know, but I, I take it very seriously that yeah. it's either by grace and, or not. And when and when we pull the pendulum over to the side of like, hey, you know, you know, we are saved by grace through faith. Well, what do you do now? This guy keeps habitually sinning and whatever he's doing. You know, what the church has done throughout history is have to try to put things together. You know, the Catholic Church put together certain sins that were, uh, they call them by Venial certain names. and mortal. That's yeah. right. And um, so if you did a mortal sin, then you had certain <laughs> things you had to do. If you had venial sins, then... Um, you know, they were pretty much taken care of pretty quickly. Right. Um, so, uh, and they still do that today. Right. They still kind of differentiate that. And that was their way to kind of like go, okay, how do I deal with this tension? Right. You know, of like, we can't just let people kind of bear bad fruit and still claim the name of Christ. Right. You know, there has to be some kind of punishment for their sin. Right. Um, and well, there was punishment for their sin, yeah. and it's called the cross. Yeah. Um, you know, um, yeah. so anyway, there's so much to talk about. Well, we're going to have to end the podcast, or else we're going to go into another hour. <laughs> 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 but uh, thanks so much for writing it. I can't wait to, to go over it. Um, and uh, thanks for all the input that you've uh, done with it, Peter. Yeah, no problem, man. It's been awesome. Check out runninglight.org to begin our two video series, Take Flight and Love or Lust. You can also send us questions on Twitter at Running Light or on our runninglight.org podcast page. Like us on Facebook at Running Light Ministries, Psalm 36.8. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your pleasures.